Okay, this is really the hardest thing we do, so bear with me. Um, first off, for today, we have a Justice Works vision meeting. It's actually going to be on Zoom, and it starts at 1.30 today. So you can go home, grab your lunch, and pop on Zoom. If you don't know about our Justice Works team, uh, we are a group that is committed to organizing for action on issues that matter to the poor, the oppressed, and the marginalized from our community, from this community. Um, after the success of our recent Live Free Oceanside campaign involving the Oceanside Police Department, we are ready to do some new visioning. So, um, if you would like to be a part of that, or just even listen and hear what's going on, you can go to our website, even now, RSVP, and you'll get a link for the Zoom meeting that starts at 1.30 today. Um, there's no end time, but I'm sure we won't. Oh, there is, three o'clock. So 1.30 to three, you can do it. Okay. Um, the next thing we have going on is March 3rd at 6.30 on Zoom again. Uh, we have our book club and we are going to be studying. It's not very, uh, my eyes, I need to do this. We are going to be studying Weep With Me, How Lament Opens Doors for Radical Reconciliation. This sounds like one we need. So. Um, you can RSVP for that at OceansideSanctuary.org. Um, read the book. I'm sure you can just get it on Amazon and um, it sounds like a good one. And then we also have Ash Wednesday service on March 2nd. And that will be in the evening at 6 p.m. in person here. It's just going to be a quick half an hour service but it is really important. These are the times where we can take a minute to really lament, to kind of look back on what's been going on. This service will be a solemn reminder of human mortality and the need for reconciliation with God, leading us powerfully into areas of Lent. So we hope that you can make it. It's a quick service. Um, but it will just be here and it'd be nice to be together. And then I know you're asking right now, how do you support our mission? So we are a 501c3. We do a lot. Jason was just telling me how we are working with a social worker to put up a family into a hotel for a couple of days until they get back on their feet and in a home. So. Um, there's a lot going on behind the scenes and we appreciate all of your gifts. So if you would like to give either one time or set up monthly giving, you can simply just go to the website, click on the give now option and uh, donate. Or if you like to write checks, um, we have donation boxes in the back and you can pop them in the back. All right. So I think that's all I have. Yay, I did it! <laughs>
say things occasionally here. She's really the boss. <clears throat> it is true. Uh, good morning. For those of you who don't know, my name is Jason. I'm the uh, lead pastor here. And we have been going through a teaching series on the book of Job, and this is a part of a much larger series that we are tackling on the subject of wisdom. So if you haven't been a part of this, and I know not all of you have been tuning in for the past six or seven weeks, we spent the whole month of January leaning into the book of Proverbs and asking the question, what is biblical wisdom? For those of you who don't know, the Hebrew Bible contains three books that are entirely comprised of the ancient wisdom tradition. There's wisdom throughout the Bible, of course, not just those three books, but these three books really are the heart of Jewish wisdom in the Hebrew Bible. Those books are Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes. We took the whole month of January to dig into Proverbs, this month, we have done Job, and we're going to wrap that up today. And then if you're not entirely sick of the topic of wisdom, next month, we are going to tackle Ecclesiastes. Now, it has been my sort of thesis, my, uh, my suggestion to you, that Proverbs represents essentially basic wisdom, like Wisdom 101. For people who need to know how to live their lives, and they need to know how to live their lives well, Proverbs is extraordinarily helpful, and at the beginning of the book of Proverbs, it's really characterized as a parent teaching a child how to live life. And that's essentially what the book of Proverbs is. It's extraordinarily useful. It's good, for example, for young people to know that they need to get up every day and maybe go to work and uh, not hang around with the wrong people, that life is full of potential dangers, and that what they really should do is obey their parents and obey the rules of society and, you know, be good people in the world. And if they are, if they're good people in the world, then their lives will generally be good. That if they follow the rules and, and do what's right, then they will be successful. If they break the rules and do what's wrong, they will not be successful. Job comes along and throws a wrench in that idea. Job, like many of you, grows up at some point and says, wait a minute, I know an awful lot of people who get up every day and work very hard and follow the rules and are respectful and good, and they live terrible, horrible lives of suffering. And perhaps even worse, we all know lots of people who get up every day and break the rules and lie and cheat and steal and are quite terrible people, and yet somehow they profit enormously. So what about that God of Proverbs who says that if you're good, then you will give a good, live a good life? Uh, Job is that guy. Job's the guy who asks those hard questions. And so I've suggested to you up to this point that Job represents more advanced wisdom. It's like wisdom 201. Once you have the basics mastered, we can begin to wrestle with more complexity. Uh, and I apologize if using those phrases, Wisdom 101 and 201, is triggering bad memories from college for you. But that is very much how this works. We're leaning into more complicated ideas. Uh, so today, we're going to wrap up the book of Job, and I'm going to tell you what I think Job's answer to the question is. Do you remember the question? The question is, if being good doesn't guarantee me a good life, then what's the point? 
And I've told you for the last couple of weeks that I wasn't going to answer that question for you, that I wanted you to lean into it. Today, I'm going to give you what I think is my answer to that question and then let you agree with me or disagree with me or whatever you want to do with that is fine with me. Uh, but you're here and I have you for the next uh, 30 minutes or so, so I'm going to torment you with my perspective on that. So on that note, this would be a good time to pray. Yeah. God, we thank, God, we thank you so much for today, for this opportunity for us to come together as a church, to uh, come together both here in person, in our sanctuary, and also for those who are watching live online on Facebook and YouTube. We're grateful that we have so many different ways of coming together this morning to turn to these passages of scripture, to allow them to challenge us, to stretch our hearts and our minds, and to be uncomfortable with the questions and the answers that we find in this great tradition. I ask that you would grow us in some way today, that we would see uh, you and the world and goodness with fresh eyes. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Yesterday, Janelle and I uh, were feeling a bit overwhelmed, so we went to Anza Borrego, and we did something we've never done before. Some of you maybe have done it. We hiked the Palm Canyon Trail, which starts at the base of the mountains right there in Anza Borrego. You go up this trail. It's a pretty short hike. It's only about a mile and a half from the bottom to the top, and it's really kind of amazing. Janelle and I are in this stage of our lives where we're just like enamored with the desert, I don't know if that means we're like really getting old or, or what, but you know, we go out into the desert, you know, we're like perpetually cold. So then, you know, it warms us up and then we go out to the desert and there's something incredible about the landscape that reminds me of like the moon or something. It's incredibly barren and beautiful and harsh and stark all at the same time. You hike up this trail and as you go up, uh, if you haven't been there before, about halfway up the trail, you start to notice a stream that's trickling down the center of the canyon. You get up a little bit higher, you start to see a little bit more vegetation because of the stream. It starts to get greener. And then at the top, like like something out of a movie, you see this oasis pop up in the middle of this desert canyon, these incredibly tall palm trees that are beautiful. And there's pools of water, and it's lush, and uh, it's really a remarkable sight. There are these really tall palm trees that are right there at the center of that big oasis. And you know, palm trees in the wild aren't neatly trimmed, right? Like if you drive along Coast Highway, you have palm trees that are really tall and you know, all those dead palm fronds have been trimmed by city workers who come along once a year and they trim them, right? But out in the wilderness, palm trees aren't like that. They're like, like from the top to the ground, it's all dead palm fronds. And, you know, so it looks a little bit unusual if you're from Southern California. Well, the trees at the very top of the oasis do not have any dead palm fronds. In fact, the trunks are entirely black, which is really striking because as you walk up, you see these like black tree trunks and then these like bright green tufts of palms at the very top. And as we're going up, I said, I wonder why the trunks are black. And Janelle, because she's smarter than me, said, "I'll I'll bet there was a fire. And we got to the top, and there's a sign up there. Sure enough, it says, uh, two years ago, a fire swept through that canyon and completely decimated all the palm trees there. And there's a picture of the palm trees from two years ago. They're just black, charred trunks sticking up out of the oasis. Nothing on top. 
like, you know, burnt toothpicks sticking like in a, you know, burnt cake or something. And here they are, two years later, green and lush and beautiful on the top. And there's a little story there about how over hundreds of years, people have had different kinds of relationships with this canyon. Hundreds of years ago, if we lived here, we would have found Native Americans living in a village around that oasis. Uh, fast forward another hundred years or so, and we would have found uh, settlers coming from the eastern United States displacing the indigenous Americans and setting up uh, a, a station there so that they could be refreshed. And now, 150 years or so later, we see a canyon uh, stunningly recovering from the effects of a devastating fire. The story of Job is in there, if you have eyes to see it. So I want to set up what we read today by just sharing that with you. Job is a remarkable book because when we read it, the very first thing that we tend to come away from it is that God is not a very nice person. Job begins with this amazing story of God and Satan arguing in the heavens, God bragging about Job, who is an incredibly righteous person, and Satan saying, of course he's a good guy, nothing bad has ever happened to him, and God saying, please do whatever you want to this person, and let's see what happens. As though our lives every day are some sort of cosmic experiment. And Satan proceeds to take everything from Job, to kill Job's family, to take away his riches, all of his property, and yet Job persists in worshiping God. But he is not unscathed by the experience. Job instead grows angry. And in chapter 3, after that opening story, we see that Job's suffering is so bad, we talked about this last week, that he actually would prefer to die. In fact, chapter 3 is called Job's Death Wish Poem because Job's suffering is so great that he would rather not only die, but he would rather never have existed in the first place. And then from there, what we see is Job visited by his friends, and for the next several chapters, there is an ongoing debate between Job and his friends Job's friends, leaning perhaps on Proverbs and Psalms, say, you must have done something wrong for such terrible things to happen to you. You must have sinned, therefore repent so that everything can be made right. And this argument goes back and forth, Job insisting that he has done nothing wrong. And in the middle of this argument, remarkably, in verse 28, or excuse me, chapter 28, we have the addition of another voice. We're not quite there yet, so bear with me. In chapter 28, we have the addition of another voice. We know because of the style of the writing of the book of Job that an editor came along later and added chapter 28 and added chapters 32, 33, 34, 35, and 36, and 37. All of these chapters are another person who came along and said, no, 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 I don't think I like where this is going, and inserted their own contribution to the debate. Now, for some of you, this might bother you, the idea that somebody came along later and added some ideas to the book of Job, but this is exactly how our faith works. It turns out that the Job poet took an old folktale 
We see that folktale in the first two chapters of Job and the last chapter of Job. That old folktale tells the story of the righteous sufferer who suffers greatly. And despite that great suffering, is faithful to God. And because he is faithful to God, he gets a whole new family back and gets all of his riches back. That little folktale is wrapped up with a neat little bow and it matches Proverbs perfectly. The Job poet comes along centuries later. He splits that folktale in half and inserts some of the most beautiful poetry of the ancient world to explore how exactly it could possibly be that we might live good lives even though we can't control them. And in the middle of that poetry, a later editor comes along and adds his or her own thoughts to the story as well. This is not a weakness in the text. It is how our faith works. You have your ideas about what it means to live a good and faithful life, and I have mine. And I don't know if you've noticed, but sometimes we disagree. And so Job represents this back and forth dialogue, this disagreement, this debate about how it is that these terrible things could have happened to Job in the first place. And it's in the midst of this discourse, this disagreement, this debate, that the poet gives us Finally, after 37 chapters of back and forth, the poet gives us God's response. And so here we are. Chapter 38, I want to read to you just a small portion of God's response that I think is representative of the bigger argument that the poet is making. So bear with me. Chapter 38, starting in verse 22. This is not on the screen, so just... Hold with me here for a second. Job chapter 8, 38, verse 22 says this. This is God speaking to Job. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has cut a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no one lives in the desert, which is empty of human life, to satisfy the waste and the desolate land and to make the ground put forth grass? In other words, Job's question is, what have I done wrong? What is the point of being good if it doesn't guarantee a good life? And God's response is, you don't know what you're talking about. Were you there when I laid the foundations of the world? Can you tell me where the pillars of the foundations of creation are sunk? Do you know where the storehouses of snow and hail are kept? And the poem goes on and on in exactly this way. The poet shows us this staggering breadth of the complexity and the beauty of the universe. My favorite part is from verses 28 to 33 when the poet leaves creation on earth, when the poet leaves the talk of creatures and animals and rain and snow and hail and turns his attention to the universe. 
In verse 28, he says, Has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth? And who has given birth to the hoarfrost of heaven? The waters become hard like stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. Verse 31, can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? Or loose the cords of Orion? The poet is now gazing upon the stars and asking Job, do you understand any of this? Can you lead forth the Maseroth in their season? Or can you guide the bear with its children? That's a reference to a constellation in the sky. Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on earth? In other words, God's answer to Job. What have I done wrong? What is the point of living a good life is not to answer that question. God dismisses the question entirely. And instead, a little bit like Abram in Genesis chapter 15, God takes Job outside and points to the stars in the sky and says, what do you see? Points him around the majesty of, of the world and the created order and asks, do you really understand any of this? Now, the trouble with God's response is that when we read the book of Job as though it is an explanation of how God works, we find God to be a terribly insufferable jerk. So when we think that Job is a kind of pastoral revelation of how God inflicts punishment on people or how God tortures people just to make a point or how all the evil things in, that, in the world that happen, happen because God directs them, then when God comes along later and says, who are you to even ask these questions? It characterizes God as a terribly bad person. But that is not the point of Job. Job is not peeling back the curtains of heaven and showing us God's motivations or how God works or what God's character is. The entire point of the book of Job is to call into question our question, why did these terrible things happen to me? What did I do wrong? I don't deserve any of it. There's a much bigger response here that God is pointing to by revealing the mysteries of the universe to Job. And we see it, I think, in Job's response. Verse, chapter 42, verses 1 through 6. Here's how Job responds to several chapters of this poetry that reveals the mystery of the universe. Job answered the Lord, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Verse 3, Job quotes God's response to him, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? And then Job responds, therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. This is what God does in his response. God utters 
things too wonderful for Job or you or me to possibly understand. Like taking somebody who is suffering and showing that suffering, grieving person a picture of a broad and complicated and difficult universe, Job finds perspective. Job discovers his own place in that bigger universe. And he says, verse 4, Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you declare to me, I had heard of you by hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. I did not know what I was saying. This, to me, seems to point us in a very different direction than we had hoped. I was recently reading the blog of a technology cryptographer because I'm a nerd. Who also happens to be a shipwright. A shipwright, for those of you who don't know, I did not know, is somebody who builds boats. And I was struck by something he wrote in his blog. He wrote, I like sailing. I have a master mariner's license, and I used to deliver yachts all over the world. I've spent enough time on the water to love the ocean, but also to be constantly terrified of it. And this in turn reminded me of the famous quote from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. When little Lucy Pevensey hears about Aslan, the huge lion who represents God, and she asks, understandably, is he safe? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Mr. Tumnus adds, he's wild, you know? Not a tame lion. This, I think, is the point of Job. Life is good but it is not safe. Life in this enormous, complex, mysterious universe is full of both light and darkness, beauty and ugliness, joy and sorrow. God's response, if you read it carefully, starting there in Job chapter 38, is an unveiling of God's working in the universe in light and darkness. In creation and destruction, in goodness and in sorrow. The temptation of conventional wisdom is to believe that we can tame life. In other words, that we can tame God, that we can be in control of it. But that is a small-minded, foolish, egocentric view of life. The universe does not exist for us. God is not waiting expectantly for us to pray the right prayers or offer the right sacrifices or cultivate the right motivations in our heart so that they can finally reward us with health and wealth and happiness. Rather, we exist for the universe. We. And I, I don't just mean each of us individually. I mean 
humanity at large. We are just one very small part in a much bigger whole. This is the testimony of every poet, every philosopher, every scientist, every theologian. The world is enormous, complicated, and difficult, and beautiful, and maddeningly, frustratingly painful. All at the same time. When we grow up, we discover that the question, what is the point of being good if it doesn't guarantee a good life, is simply too small a question to ask. Mature wisdom understands that goodness consists of accepting our very good but very small part in the wider universe, taking both the good and the bad as they come. Mature wisdom understands Job's response to his wife in chapter 2, Shall we accept good from God and not bad? This, of course, is not what we say to someone who has just suffered a tragedy. We don't visit grieving people and say, hey, quit your whining. It's not all about you. That would be gross. Nor do we, like Job's friends, say, you must have done something wrong. You must have offended God in some way. No, we comfort them. We acknowledge their pain and their suffering. If we can, honestly, we tell them we know what that's like. And at some point in your life, you will know what that's like. You will be able to say to a suffering person, I understand. But I've noticed, and maybe you have too, that very often the gift that grief and suffering offer us is that once we have wept bitterly and torn our clothes in anguish and shaken our fist in righteous anger and yes, even perhaps wished to die because our agony was so great, that on the other side of that, the gift that suffering offers us is a massive shift in perspective. It's not all about us. Our acceptance of loss is accompanied by a vision of life that is bigger and more beautiful than the one that we had before. And that vision of life is wisdom that comforts us. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you again for today. We thank you for the gift of uh, this story that can be so difficult for us to take in. And it occurs to me this morning that as we are talking in this very safe place about suffering and grief that all over the world people are suffering and grieving right now. That there are places of open conflict like Ukraine, but certainly not limited to that. That there are people who are being wounded and hurt, being treated unjustly, who are being oppressed 
whose lives are being put in danger for no reason other than someone's greed or selfish ambition. And we confess that there is no good answer for why that happens. And so our prayer this morning is that you would give us perspective. That we would let go of the need to be in control. And that somehow we would be able to let go. To still be good and faithful. But to be humbled by a realization that we are not in control. pray that you would comfort all those who are suffering this morning and that in due time you would bring them comfort. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.